What, what, uh, what carol is heard sung in the desert? O camel ye faithful. Mm, mm. And um, my talk today is about, you'll never guess what. Uh, <laughs> but um, Dave gave me the title and said to think about, do we look in the right place? So the talk today is going to be looking at the, the Magi and um, you know, where they were searching, how they were searching, and how they traveled to find Jesus. Um, forgive me if I read a bit from my notes. I only wrote this yesterday, so I haven't quite rehearsed it. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, we're in the bonkers situation, aren't we, at the moment, where there's so much Christmassy stuff around, and we've got lots of flying elves and Santas, and in school there's Elf on the Shelf, and all this sort of magical, wonderful stuff of Christmas. And sometimes in all the craziness of that, we can actually lose sight of actually what Christmas is about and what the actual Christmas story is and which characters are actually in the Christmas story. So um, my topic, which is the Magi, is actually traditionally done on the 6th of January on a day called Epiphany. And for some churches and some countries around the world, that's celebrated almost more than Christmas. So, for example, in, in Spain... The children don't get, or adults don't give many presents on Christmas Day. It's actually on Epiphany when they actually give their presents to each other in memory of the wise men coming to visit baby Jesus. But the weirdest one when I was researching this, the traditions around Europe, is actually an Italian one where there is a witch on a broom that flies around your house on Epiphany, on the evening of Epiphany, um, giving presents to children. Either nice presents if they're being good, or a lump of coal if they've been bad. Um, so I'm quite glad that we don't have that tradition in the UK. But I'm, I'm sure, you, you must know, okay, there are how many kings in the nativity story? What, tw- 12? I have heard 12. I've heard two. I've heard three. That we're not entirely sure. Um, I mean, in, in schools, we... Um, we're, we're full on with nativities, aren't we? So, uh, sorry, Joseph, I didn't clear with that. Is that okay? <laughs> um, but he did get to play Joseph as Joseph, which was quite nice when he was at school. I planned that well in advance, as you can tell. Um, and that's Nathan with a, yeah, it's not chocolate. It is painted on as a beard. Uh, and, and Ella in their nativities. And you get the privilege in school of seeing, we just had an infant nativity at our school as well. And the parents come in, and it's so excited. And you have all the sheep and the shepherds and the kings and all the bits are in place. Um, but in school this week, I was like, okay, guys, let's see what actually was in the original Christmas story. You know, is Santa there or not? Um, I didn't mention the witch from Italy. Um, but so we got the, our Bibles out, a class set of Bibles, and we flicked through and I had to show them where to find the New Testament, where the Gospels were. And then I said, OK, you're Bible detectives now. Can you find me the bit where Jesus is actually born in the Bible? And they're all flicking through trying to find it. And then you know, it's great. You see their excitement. Yeah, I found it, I found it, I found it. Here he is. He found, found Jesus born. Like, were, there, were there any shepherds? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah there were shepherds. Were there any angels? How many angels? You know, those sort of questions. Some of the ones we've been doing with our um, uh, little nativity squares we cut out and gave the children to ask them, you know, how many stars were there in the heavenly hosts, that sort of idea. Um, but the Magi, most of the people in the Bible story, you can kind of expect them to be there. You know, they're, they're in Jerusalem, they're in Bethlehem, they're, they're part of the Jewish culture, they're living in that land. The Magi are kind of this slightly strange outlier 
because they're not even from Israel. They're from somewhere else, somewhere to the east. Why does Matthew include them in his gospel story? What's their significance? Why have they come? Where do they come from? What drew them there? Um, So this morning, we're going to actually read Matthew's account in the gospel to see what he said actually happened. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he could call together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem. In Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be my shepherd to my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream to not go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So you can see from that, it doesn't actually mention kings or there being three of them. We kind of have that assumption that maybe there were three, just simply because of the three gifts that they brought. It says they were magi, which we tend to think more of as being wise men who came from the east. They were quite possibly Persians who had followed the trade route from modern-day Iraq to Jerusalem. And they were most certainly like to be people of great wealth and power because of the things that they had to bring with them to give. So the picture you got there is actually about 600 years before Jesus was born, when the Persian Empire was the biggest empire in the world. And proportionally, more people were part of the Persian Empire than have been in any other empire in our history, percentage-wise. So it spread right the way from modern-day Iraq, um, right across through to, to northern Africa, to Egypt. By Jesus' time, that had shrunk to a much smaller empire because the Romans had come in. But I picked this one 600 years before because there is a point where we hear about Magi in the Bible in Daniel about 600 years before Jesus was born. So let me roll back to that. Um, Magi, it was was in the Greek translation, it basically means there was a, a type of priesthood in Babylon. And there was a king there called King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel had been in exile. So the 
the Jewish nation had been taken from their homeland and they'd been taken across into exile and very few were left in Israel. And Daniel, whilst he's there, um, finds favor, a bit like the story in Joseph, isn't it? He finds favor with um, King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar, he calls him in and he interprets a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar's had. And as a result of that interpretation, he's made the high priest in charge of the Magi, who are the priestly group. The sort of, they were the scholars, they were the astronomers, the ast- astrologers of that time. And so he, he brings about all of his knowledge of the scriptures, all of his traditions, as he is put into that position of power. And we know that Nebuchadnezzar is recorded as having experienced something of who God is because he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That's in Daniel 4. And during that time, Daniel has several other prophecies that he brings, including one where he says that... um, Um, He foretells the Messiah coming to the Jewish people. He even says that there will be an anointed one who will be put to death. So it's quite possible that over those centuries, that the teachings of Israel that were brought into Iraq were remembered quite possibly by that priesthood. So maybe it isn't so strange that these random people from the East just rock up because they might well have known those scriptures and that being passed down from the generations. In Numbers 24, verse 7, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. The star. Quite possibly. So these priests, they were studying and trying to predict the future. They were trying to interpret dreams. But this new star that appears in the sky, because of what they know has been foretold, they're compelled to travel a 2,000-mile round trip. According to Google Maps, if you walked nonstop, you could just about do it in 15 days, one way. So it would have taken them a good chunk of time. And if this star appeared at Jesus' birth, it's quite likely it would have been some time after Jesus was born we know that he was in a house, not in a stables, when they arrived. Maybe it was a year. Maybe it was two years. We also know that Herod, when he finds out how long ago the star appeared that they followed, orders the killing of the um, infants in Bethlehem because he's worked out the time frame. So he doesn't just go for under six months or something. He goes for a slightly older age range. Um, by and by. So there they are. They, they've traveled all the way. But before they go, they've got to prepare for Christmas, just like we're preparing for Christmas. They've got to prepare, no, I say they don't prepare for Christmas. They prepare to travel um, to go and see Jesus. And they have to get ready. They've spotted this light that they're seeking and they're searching. Then maybe they're not quite sure what that light is, but they know it's important. Now, we live in a time, don't we, where people are searching spiritually, people who don't know where the light is. They don't know about Jesus, and they they know they're missing something. They know they want something. They're searching, and they're looking. 
which gives us a great opportunity because we can actually talk about the, the actual light that Jesus brings into the world. So here they are. They're following Jesus. Um, I'll go back to that bit about Jesus actually said himself being the light of the world. For when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will be able to have the light of life. That's in John chapter 8, verse 12. So there is this good news that Jesus said himself that he's the light of the world that we can tell people about when they're searching for their purpose in life, for, for what, what life is about. When we meet people who are walking in darkness, or we know that there are hidden dangers, things that can't be seen. But if we live in the light, Jesus helps to see things clearly. If we make the effort to focus on him, to spend time with him, then we can encounter his presence. We can let him guide us in our daily lives and show us the way. We can follow his guidance just like the Magi followed that light of God from the east to Bethlehem. But more than that, I'm going to talk about how we can also be a light to the world. When we first came to the community church, quite some time ago now, Joseph was only very little, there was one of these banners was up in, um, uh, in the church, and it had this passage on it, which said that you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be, sorry, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Matthew chapter 5. Now, to me, that was the kind of church I wanted to be part of. Because there it was. It was Albert's place. It was on the top of the hill physically. But here was a statement that we want to be a light to this community. We want to shine out and share that light to others. Not just hold it in a bowl ourselves, but to be that light that attracts others. But if my part is to, if I have a part to play in that, what, what can I bring myself? Just like the mage I had to think, oh, what, what do we take as presents? Now, they're, they're, I think they got it pretty wrong, really. I mean, of all the, the crazy things to take a newborn baby, you know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, I mean, surely, you know, sort of a, you know, cuddly toys and nappies and baby grows, something like that would have made more sense. But then they were men, so, you know... Um, <laughs> Um, so I, I, was, I was thinking about each, each of those um, different things you might have bought. And I don't own much gold. I do have, yeah, this is the only thing of gold I, I own, which is my wedding ring. So to me, that's, what's the significance of that? Well, when I got married to Kath and she gave me this ring, can't put it back on again now, um, <laughs> We made that promise not only to each other to dedicate and serve and to speak into each other's lives, but we put God center of our lives. We put him as the focus. It was our commitment not just to each other, but our commitment to him. And so part of my gift to God is actually that. It's me bringing my commitment to him to make myself available to him. In the Bible, gold was brought probably because it was an appropriate gift to signify a king, an earthly king, being born. And we know that they, they actually come to Herod and they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? They recognize that Jesus was an earthly king. 
he, we know that Matthew had already explained how he was born into the lineage of King David, into Jacob's line. Then we got frankincense. Autumn. Don't worry, it's not that much stuff in here. Um, and this is a, a nicely scented candle, not as lovely as the one that's up there, I'm afraid, candle. Um, and it does, it smells quite strongly. I bought that from home. Because frankincense was, uh, it's a type of incense. It was uh, expensive. It was significant because it was burnt in the temple of God. It was burnt in the Holy of Holies. It was considered to be a fragrant offering to God. It was a sign of something that the priests did. So here we have Jesus not only being acknowledged as a king, but as a priestly king through this offering of frankincense. They had already identified these foreigners, these strangers from another land, had seen that there was going to be a priestly king, hence the, what they brought. Even if we go back to Exodus 30, in the tabernacle, in the most holy area, Moses has an altar of incense, and he overlays that in gold. And on that gold, uh, on that altar, he burns a special recipe that included frankincense as a pleasing aroma to God. But also, all the holy items that are used are anointed and consecrated with an oil that has myrrh as its base. And when he's completed all of that in the ancient um, tabernacle, God says that this is where I will meet you. And in Jesus, we've got this prophetic mirroring, haven't we, of God incarnate, God in Jesus, the place where we can meet him, this kingly, priestly person anointed with oil. So myrrh, though, is probably, to me, the most powerful of those three things. I didn't, didn't have any myrrh. The closest I could get was some hand cream. Um, white sandalwood and amber smells nice though and so myrrh was actually it's a weird one because it's a resin that was generally used for embalming bodies which is a really strange thing to give to a newborn baby but it's also used in making that oil that's used to anoint kings even our own current king was anointed with oil that has myrrh in it so we've got this thing where, and also, if you think about the crucifixion, we're going to be doing communion later. Jesus is offered wine which has myrrh in it, and he refuses to take it, but that is offered to him as well at his death. So we know that Jesus, who is born fully human, is also fully divine. He came to earth with a purpose. So here, even at his birth, his death is being referenced by the wise men. And when we celebrate at Christmas, we're celebrating literally the fact that God was born among us for this purpose, so that he could die, so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so we could come into relationship with God, and there could be this new covenant. Now, if it was Romans 8, it said, um, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, now he will not also, sorry, now will he not also, along with him, graciously give all things to us? Now, I have to be thankful that God has given me everything that I have. I put my trust in him, and I know that he blesses me in return. 
So when I'm thinking about what do I give back to God, a God who has everything, I can think about what's he already given me? What does he want me to do with that? So that tradition we have of giving things at Christmas to the ones that we love is partly because the Magi bought their gifts. But the greatest gift wasn't the gold, the frankincense, or the myrrh. The greatest gift of Christmas is Jesus coming to us as his son. Um, but I did want to mention this. I bought a suitcase because anyone here been on a package holiday? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it all wonderful? Um, <laughs> there's this lovely image, I think, of, you know, actually, I, I, I want to bring my best to God, but I'm fully aware that I'm, I'm a package holiday deal. When I come all-inclusive, there is what I am good at. There is my gifts and my talents, and I can offer those to God, and I can try and do it. But unfortunately, with all of that comes my failures, my, my, when I get it wrong, the mistakes I make. I'm a package deal. So actually, I know that when I come before the cross, when I come before God, when I come before him in prayer, I'm bringing all of me. I want to bring my best offerings but I also want to bring all of me openly to him. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I had one more thing in there. I, just, I, I skipped past it, but I just mentioned it. You know, have you ever unwrapped on Christmas Day a present that you were like trying to look like you were really enjoying? But really, you thought, what on earth is this? Why I've been given it? Thank you so much for that lovely thing. But I've got one of those. My father gave me a toolbox. Fran, you'll appreciate this, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I think I was 19. It was empty. It had no tools in it whatsoever. That was my main Christmas present when I was 19, was my toolbox. I still have it. And although at the time when I was 19, I really didn't appreciate an aluminium toolbox that was empty. Over the years, it's gradually gained tools. So sometimes if you feel like maybe you're a bit of an empty vessel, like what do I bring before God? I've got nothing. I don't have gold, frankincense, or myrrh. Actually, as you get to know God, as you begin to commit your life to him, to serving him, he gives you the tools to put into that box. He gives you those gifts. He gives you those abilities. He blesses you in an amazing way. And sure enough, you can end up with a toolbox full of tools. But if it stays in the cupboard and you never use those tools, it's pretty useless still. So my encouragement today is, yes, get the tools from God, accept his blessings, but Put those to use. Where are you going to use those gifts and the talents in church? Where are you going to give to support what happens in church? Give of God your best, not what's left over at the end. This Christmas, put God center first in your life and your thoughts and allow him to bless you through that.